adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to another amazing episode of the Adversary Universe podcast. My name is Christian Rodriguez, field CTO of the Americas, and with me, as always, is Adam Myers, the head of our counter-adversary operations team. Adam, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you feeling? Um, you know what? I've had better days fighting off a little cold, but that does not stop me. You still sound robust and, uh, and as chipper as ever. Like a fresh cup of coffee after cutting your lawn. Can't wait to get into today's episode because... We're talking about a really interesting topic that I've been bringing up in a lot of my conversations with customers over the past, I would say, year or two. When we launched our Adversary Universe tour last year, I was on the road, as you know. I know you started the first ones in, I think it was, was it Australia or Singapore? Yeah, it was Australia. Australia, that's right. And then we carried that program over here to the U.S. and we started the first one and I believe it was North Carolina and then we went to Georgia and then it just kind of spread like wildfire where we spent half a day with executives around the U.S. walking through adversary tradecraft, you know, some of the campaigns that were becoming most prevalent. And I know that you were responsible for, for a lot of the really great content that was presented. But one one area that stood out the most was this access broker narrative. And it became such a an amazing talk track because it's still very relevant. It was relevant then. It's still relevant now. And I think it changes the way that companies have to address the way that threats are perceived within their their environments, right, within their enterprises. And so I definitely want to spend some time with you walking through this access broker ecosystem and this dark world. And, you know, I'm going to ask you probably a lot more questions than I've historically asked in, in previous episodes. I hope this episode drives a lot of, uh, of more questions even from our listeners. And, and I hope that it's very insightful because, again, this access broker problem, I think, is becoming a, a lot bigger. And I don't think there's any, any type of uh, slowing down. So let's start off with maybe, you know, Adam, do you mind maybe just for, for, the, for our listeners that aren't familiar with this narrative, can you break down what an access broker is? Yeah, access broker is kind of part of the what we call the e-crime ecosystem. And so as we think about e-crime, you know, way back when we were looking at the kill chain. And so we had the uh, Lockheed Martin kind of cyber kill chain, which we really applied to the, the targeted intrusion, the nation state threat actors. And as we were looking at e-crime and building our, our visibility in e-crime, we realized that that didn't really make as much sense for the e-crime space because there were different components of that e-crime ecosystem. There were folks that specialized in spam and spam bots, and then there were folks that specialized in credential theft and folks that helped on the monetization side. So there was just this whole kind of rich mosaic of different groups that were doing different pieces that ultimately led to a, what we call the the e-crime economy, the underground economy. And if you look at the adversary universe, for example, you'll see we have the e-crime index, which, is, which we call ECX, which is a little nod to the Intel register mm -hmm. uh, that for the chipset that um, is the counter register. Yep. And so we kind of created this index to track that e-crime ecosystem. One of the things that's really become prevalent in that space. And in fact, in the last global threat report, we talked about the fact that there was something like 110 or 112% increase in access broker advertisements. 
this is folks that specialize in kind of weaponizing a vulnerability or, or figuring out an inroad to a target. Mm. And so once they refine that access, um, let's say it's a, a vulnerability and the access broker refines that really comes up with a reliable way to exploit something. And then they go after a number of targets and they don't really care about doing the ransomware. They don't care about the, the next step of what happens. They just want to get in, secure a foothold, and then they sell that foothold on the underground to the highest bidder, typically using things kind of like Zoom Info type information. You know, it's hmm. this big of a company, this many employees, this much revenue. And they offer that up based on, you know, they'll have a starting price, but they'll, they'll offer that up for sale to the highest bidder. And then you can take that and pivot and do ransomware or do data extortion or whatever the next kind of step in that, that, that criminal operation might be. And so they're kind of like the feeder mm. uh, of that, that, that ecosystem. And they kind of, that's where it starts. It's, so, so, you know, I'm very familiar with these, with these forum postings in, in terms of what they say. And they seem very organized, right? To your point, in that Zoom Info-like approach to the way that they're advertising the profile of their respective victims. I've seen things like, you know, the vertical or the industry that their victim is in, the amount of employees. I've seen them even posting the types of NTFS permissions that they're selling with, with this posting. And it seems that these groups are, are fairly, they have their acts together, right? I mean, so they clearly know what they're doing and how to gain the attention. But is it, you know, you, you mentioned that, that they're just kind of sitting there once they establish a foothold. But do these postings, are they indicative of also just, you know, really successful harvesting campaigns that happened in the past and now they're just selling, you know, these credentials or? Well, I, you know, I think a good example is Profit Spider. And Profit Spider, the, the name was derived from the fact that they were targeting some Oracle vulnerabilities mm. and were kind of looking at organizations that had a particular unpatched version of, of I forget which exactly the, the service was, but I think it was something to do with Tomcat. They were getting in, securing access, and then sell to the highest bidder, which frequently resulted in ransomware being deployed. And then the ransomware threat actor, you know, as you pinch and zoom into that, uh, that, that model, perhaps it was a ransomware threat actor who was using ransomware as a service. So now you've got Profit Spider getting paid, you have a ransomware as a service platform, maybe it was Lockbit or or something along those lines. Um, they get paid on it. The person that typically is called a pen tester in the underground, they get paid from the ransom. So uh, everybody's making money off of that kind of initial access. It sounds very similar to a program my mom was once wrapped into where there were a variety of perfumes that she had to sell and then she would make more money if she got other people to sell that same perfume, but oh, you're like a multi-level uh, marketing yeah, scheme. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not though. This is this is really kind of like you know I, I I don't know like a clumsy analogy would be if I steal your bike, right? Mm -hmm. And then I stole your bike, and then I sell it to somebody else, and then they you know take it up, take it and cut it up for parts, and then they sell the parts off someplace else, and then ultimately it comes back, and they're they're selling you back your bike. Yeah, interesting. So there's there's obviously a lot of monetization going into access, right? Because now, you, like to your point, an access broker is, is going to sell, if we look at that bigger ecosystem, right? That access broker is selling that initial foothold that they've established. And then you have other groups that are coming in through that same foothold that was established. And like to your point, they now have ransomware as a service and maybe someone else comes in and says they, they start tacking something else on. 
And where, so, so, so where does the buck end, right? Someone is now launching that ransomware and waiting for the payout. Well, the, the interesting thing is that the organization doesn't know that it's happening until mm. they get that last step, that last, step, right? that exactly. last mile yep. of, of getting the ransom note. And yeah. One of the ones that always sticks out in my mind, there was an, uh, a company that we observed a access broker advertising that they had access to this organization. And I think it was uh, it was late December. It was something like December 17th or 18th. They, they did the advertisement. And by Christmas, the company filed with the SEC uh, a form that they had been breached. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that's interesting about that is there's this concept, you know, you, you'll hear about it typically from from the military community talking about left of boom. Right. And so if you think about, you know, this this comes, I think, from IEDs and things like that, where there's a timeline, there's things that lead up to the point that that IED goes off. And then there's things that happen after that IED goes off. And, you know, we borrow that a lot and we borrow a lot from the military and, and intelligence world and in the cyber community. But, you know, I think when they talk about left of boom, it's trying to stop something bad from happening. And so in that scenario, having the visibility into the underground, being able to connect the dots and say, huh, they're describing something that looks like my company and they're selling access to it. Maybe I better look into this. Maybe I better take a closer look at who this is, what they're doing. Maybe we've got a problem because... If that company had done that, had seen that advertisement and went and done a complete compromise assessment or started to do some sort of deep analysis to see if there was a problem, then perhaps they could have stopped that from happening and and been left of boom or left of theft, uh, if you will. Right. And so that is the that's the hope, I think, with this stuff is that the reason that why why we're tracking these access brokers is that that's where all of these bad things start. Right. That's the initial, the the person that bought the cell phone and the detonators and the explosives to that party, right? So if we can get in front of and identify when those access brokers are, are getting access and, and when they're starting to advertise it, that's when you can actually prevent bad things from happening or stop the breach. Hmm. Interesting. So I know in the Global Threat Report that we published uh, earlier this year, you know, access brokers was, again, a very underscored topic, right? And there was a big boom in that access broker narrative, we saw a lot of postings. I think, what was that total increase from 2021? Do you have that? The number was bum, 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 access brokers, 2,500 advertisements, 112% increase from the previous year. Yeah, that's that's monstrous, right? I know in that report too, we referenced this concept of you know, buying a la carte or in bulk, right? So like this one access, one auction type of technique. Can you explain that? What is that? What exactly is that one access, one auction that uh, well, so I, I think it was just a matter of here's a bunch of compromises that we've accomplished or, or footholds we've we've secured. You can buy them all, or they conversely they'll do kind of more like what I mentioned earlier with the we've got access to this organization. It's this size. It's you know, so you're kind of creating a, a much more oh like a defined victim. Interesting. So it's kind of like either or, right? So it's I pop. 30 companies and you want them you all. Can buy all 30 for five grand or i've popped this one company and here's how big it is and how how juicy of a target it is and that's going to be five grand itself i know i noticed that also one year last year there were several postings uh on a few forums which we'll actually cover that here in a second on you know where these these uh these broker postings ultimately reside and we won't 
give everyone the details to go and hunt them themselves, but we'll kind of generally speak to them. But I think there was also a few postings that started highlighting whether or not customers or their victims had access to cyber insurance, which I thought was pretty interesting. Do you, do you recall that? Oh, it sounds familiar, but yeah. uh, I don't, I don't remember all the details, but I, you know, I think that that is, it's another one where if they could figure it out, you know, they, they know that they're guaranteed a certain amount typically with, with the cyber insurance mm-hmm. because they can kind of ascertain what the policy would look like. Yeah. Which I think is pretty creative, but also it kind of, you know, it sets a stage that the adversaries are, you know, it, it goes back to the opening comments of knowing your adversaries and knowing the fact that there are humans behind these attacks is so important. It's not just a bunch of, you know, it's not just AI running an attack or it's just not just, you know, not necessarily just a spray and pray type of, of attack that you see these days. These attacks are very targeted and the humans behind these attacks are spending the time doing analysis of who you are as a victim and they're profiling you accordingly. And if they get to the point where they even start to understand whether or not you have access to cyber insurance. I think that again is is it underscores and it really highlights the fact that these adversaries understand your business or they're trying to understand your business and they they are putting in the effort, right? So if they're trying to understand you, you should absolutely understand them, right? And their tradecraft and their methodologies. So these actors aren't dumb, yeah, you know, and I, yeah. I think where it gets real interesting is when I look at the data extortion world where the calculus of ransomware is how long can I extend my, my downtime? How big can I maximize that impact to be for the, the victim? And the calculus for that victim is at what point does the downtime and the impact, the cost of that eclipse the ransom demand, mm. right? So imagine you're, you're a manufacturing facility and you produce widgets, whatever. And you can measure the downtime in dollars and cents. We haven't produced any widgets for the last hour. That's that's $10,000 an hour. Mm-hmm. At what point does that exceed the $5 million ransom demand? That's when an organization has to be real kind of thoughtful about do we pay or not. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the calculus of ransomware. Data extortion is something that you know is obviously on the uptake. I, we've mentioned before that there's like a 20% number of the ransomware threat actors that don't even do ransomware anymore. They're just focused on data extortion. And it's because they know that instantly there's legal and regulatory impact. And so it's not about how long is that downtime going to be because now it's about how much is this records from a class action suit perspective or HIPAA violation or SEC violation or GDPR or whatever privacy law is in place that might impact that organization there's a fixed cost associated with that you could do the math you could look at hipaa for example and know that there's a fixed price per record that you lose and so the threat actor could say look this is a 30 40 million dollar problem for you you could pay us two right something like that and they're actually you know back to the point they're not dumb yeah they're referencing GDPR and HIPAA in the extortion demand. Oh, wow. They they know what it is. They know what they're doing. They know why they're doing it. And they know why you're going to pay them. And they're going to call it out. Right. And so that is the thing that's most interesting, I think, about that is when you think about these, the threat actors and, and, and how they rationalize what they're doing and how they understand the impact. I think one of the more obvious things that's kind of interesting and, you know, that given the massive uptick in data extortion that we've been seeing, you know, I, that, that's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we're seeing with respect to why these, these attacks are so successful 
is because, you know, once the, again, those last couple stages, right. Or the steps of that attack where someone procures these credentials and they procure this access, they're kind of walking in the front door with legitimate accounts, right? So we're now talking about scenarios where the concept of dropping malware or, you know, the, if you're new to the show and you've seen, you know, any television iteration of a hack, you someone's probably banging away at a keyboard and you're like, hey, broke through the firewall, now I'm in, right? So that's, you know, fiction, right? So we're talking about someone, a group of people that are very focused on profiling your business. They establish a foothold in your, in your business, as Adam mentioned, with exploits. And now they're selling that access to someone. And that that group or whoever is basically procured that access is walking in through the front door. In your environment, they're authenticating against resources using legitimate credentials. And now they have access to kind of any and everything. And so, you know, I say this because of the data exfiltration narrative that really coincides with this access broker issue. They're really attached to the hip, right? So you have adversaries, they come in, there's no need for them to drop malware, right? There's no need to, for them to escalate privileges. A lot of times they have elevated privileges uh, within the environments that they get establish a foothold within. And then it's really more of, you know, figuring out a way to to pump data out, right? So let's walk through that real quick. So they, they get access to data, they find information that may be sensitive intellectual property, they start exfiltrating it, right? It's maybe, is, is it low and slow? What have you seen, Adam? Is it, hey, we're just gonna take a terabyte of data out? No, it's- well, What is it? Yeah, and it, you know, I think a couple of the things that you, you mentioned there, it, for me, I always think of this Bruce Lee quote, which is be like water. Right. He, he talks about the fact that water takes the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And that's what the threat actors are doing. And we're seeing this in a world where organizations that take security seriously and, and have invested in security, they're they're getting things like EDR, right? They've got Falcon uh, EDR or, or other products, and they're really taking the security seriously at the endpoint. And that makes the adversary's job harder. And if you look at some of the trends from the Global Threat Report last year, we talk about the fact that there's a 71% of the intrusions that we see are malware free. That doesn't mean that they don't necessarily use malware at some point. It just means that when they get in, they're not using malware. Sure. Yep. Yeah. You know, that is emblematic of that Bruce Lee quote, which is there's EDR. It's, it's hard to drop malware. It's hard to operate on a system, you know, and, and bring a foreign binary with you and so they you know they could try harder they could figure out a way around the edr try to bypass the edr do all this stuff or alternatively they take the easier path which is you compromise a credential come in as a legitimate user and live off the land mm -hmm. right and and you could do the same thing and so from a data extortion perspective rather than deploying ransomware which is going to be alerting it's going to get picked up you know by edrs it's going to take some time to even accomplish the encryption uh, but if you imagine they come in with a legitimate credential, they live off the land, they get to a, a sensitive file store, then they're going to use something like OneDrive or uh, some sort of you know cloud-based storage to exfil that data. And they're just dumping it in and it's getting exfilled at lightning speed. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's it. They're out. They're ghost, right? They don't have to do anything after that. They just have to send the, the extortion demand. And that's why you see, you know, some of these dedicated leak sites where they're advertising. They just put the name of the company on that site. Some reporter finds it, some some security analyst finds it, notifies the company, and they're like, hey, do you have a comment on this or do you know about this? And you're off to the races. Now, you know, any investigation you do is going to just be to figure out how they did it. They still have your data, and now you have to figure out what are you going to do about it. Mm. A couple of years ago, we got a call from a CISO that said, hey, we have a disgruntled employee that left the company. He was in IT 
He had access to our PEM solution. It was a password access management tool. And we know that he stole 300 accounts and we uh, took it with him at least. And we don't know what he's going to do, but we're very concerned. He wiped his hard drive clean, sent it in. And now we have an issue. What can you do to help us? And we ultimately came up with a really great way via one of our, our products to enable MFA on their critical assets and instantaneously ensure that if anyone tried to authenticate to these systems or remote desktop onto these machines or you know try to access these machines in general, they would be prompted with uh, an, an MFA or you know they would have that MFA prompt, I should say. And uh, it was a really easy way. And I say you know using air quotes, it was a, it was a very quick and efficient way to ensure that if this person came back in to try to do something malicious or if he sold those credentials to, you know, within one of those forums, that there would be a, a compensating controller or mechanism in place to, to kind of slow down that activity or prevent someone from accessing or, or authenticating to those systems. And so we, we've definitely seen iterations of maybe not necessarily full access broker, right? But even from a compromised credential perspective, there's even insider threat use cases that could even help drive that access broker narrative. Again, I don't know how, if we have metrics that tie how these access brokers are getting these credentials outside of the exploits, you know, I don't know if they necessarily advertise what exploits they're using with these, within these forums, but we have seen several scenarios, right? That's just one that I mentioned where even insider threat has be, is becoming an interesting topic where credentials are being harvested from disgruntled employees. Um, and even maybe someone getting ready to to make some money on, on their way out. So obviously the threat is real. The threat is coming from humans. Again, humans are responsible for these posts. You know, I don't want to throw foot out there and say everyone needs to be worried about their employees. But again, these are real stories that, that we're running across, you know, every single day where we see these posts, we see the impact of the success of these of these advertisements. We know that the access broker narrative has been uh, successful in, in various industries. In fact, based upon the global threat report, we saw a major increase in access broker postings tied to academic, right? And I think academic and technology were kind of the, the larger values of industries that were impacted by that 2022 access broker campaign of 2,500 or so plus advertisements. So what, why do you think, I'm very curious, you know, with that said, why academic, right, for the access broker narrative? I think it's just a target of opportunity. Again, remember the access broker is a vendor. And so in a traditional kind of sense, they're probably going to get everything they can and the stuff that sells is going to, you know, supply and demand, right? So if, if there's a heavy demand for it, it'll sell. Now a university or a school district, they have lots of sensitive student records. They might have medical records. They, they have lots of different information that would be controlled and certainly subject to GDPR and some of the privacy stuff that's out there. And universities and, and academia tend to have funding as well. But it's possible that that was targets of opportunity. Sure. Students probably have lower security practices or, <laughs> or, or weaker security practices. Sure. And, you know, for a period of time, I can remember probably 2019, I think, is when it, it started in July and, and August as schools were starting to open in, in the United States there were ransomware attacks going after the schools and you know academia in that regard right like we think academia is sometimes what we're thinking universities but it could also be you know smaller school districts mm, or makes sense. things like that where again if and access brokers don't necessarily gravitate towards the end result of the crime whether it be ransomware or data extortion they're just going to get the access 
So getting credentials to school districts and then using that to conduct ransomware when everybody wants to get their kids back to school so that they can get back to work and have their kids in a safe place where they know where they are, that if that school can't open because all of the registration systems or voice over IP systems or whatever it is, they, they literally can't open because of a ransomware attack. That puts the pressure on the school, and that's when they're going to probably pay. Mm, that makes sense. I've have, I've have seen many instances where schools have reached out to us for for assistance on the on unfortunately on the the back of a of a ransomware campaign uh, that was successful, and we get brought in to to kind of help remediate and help you know get them into Falcon to prevent these types of attacks from happening moving forward. But with that said, you know what would your advice then be to organizations just to protect them against? Yeah, obviously the access brokers are going to be the access brokers, but you know, what's your guidance on best practices for practitioners out there? It's a multifaceted problem. Mm-hmm. First of all, yep. you have you know the access brokers that are leveraging vulnerabilities, so making sure that you are patching known vulnerabilities. This you know some of this comes from enterprise attack surface management, right? Understanding your attack surface and trying to make it as narrow as possible. That includes known vulnerabilities, but you know, as we've seen with the uh, managed file transfer stuff. So Move It was, was in the news, which is a, a managed file transfer application. And uh, the Graceful Spider, uh, also known as Clop, got access to that and was able to go and steal a bunch of sensitive data. That was opportunistic, right? That was a zero day. Nobody had a patch for it. Nobody knew that there was a SQL injection that, that was there. So, you know, that's now kind of a minimization of that attack surface, right? So if you have something like that exposed, you want to probably keep the records or keep the files off of it, right? Usually that's used to transfer files in or out of an organization. You should be, you know, in that situation, best practice would be to sweep all the files out after some period of time so that you minimize the amount of stuff that's sitting there. If you had that thing running for three, four, five years, and then a zero day comes along and threat actor gets in and you've never swept that data, you've got a mess mm. on your hands, right? So that's that's the second part is trying to minimize where your information is and who has access to it. And this kind of gets towards the third thing, which would be a zero trust implementation. And I know zero trust is something that can be, everybody might be rolling their eyes at home or in their car <laughs> listening to this. And you know, the, the thing about zero trust is for me, it's a methodology. It is a, you know, akin to need to know in the government space. Now, once you embrace the zero trust methodology and you're only giving people access to what they need, you're minimizing the data that's out there. I mean, think about how many people keep their entire email history from forever in their mailbox. That is a big kind of unnecessary risk and exposure. So, you know, making sure that you minimize that data, minimize who has access to data, and then backstop that by having a control in place to enforce it, like identity protection. If Adam is usually logging in from Washington, D.C. on an Android device and and all of a sudden he shows up in Oxford on an iPhone, well, we should probably think twice before we let him in. And, you know, I think as an industry, we've largely adopted this concept of trust but verify. What we really need to be doing is is flipping that around and saying verify, then trust, Mm -hmm. right? Like we can't just let people have access to everything or just because they have the right identity say okay this is who they say they are you know we've we've kind of slapped multi-factor authentication on everything and we're like oh well we'll solve the security challenge by making it mfa and the reality is that mfa is defeatable we've seen plenty of mfa exhaustion attacks and we've seen social engineering 
So you can't trust MFA by itself. You need to now backstop that. And lots of people are moving to hardware tokens or to passwordless uh, solutions, which I think is is certainly part of the solution as well. But you know, there's no single answer. There's no one way to do it. But I think if you embrace some of the best practices that I mentioned, you're going to be in a much better position. It's very, very helpful. And uh, how's Oxford, by the way? Have you been? <laughs> uh, not in a while. Okay. It's beautiful, though. Okay. Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland there, I believe. Well, this is actually really great info. And I know we were getting into the vulnerability stuff, which is a topic we are going to cover on a follow-up episode. But until then, this is really great information on this. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe podcast. This is the Adversary Universe podcast.